Perhaps you have struggled with this question. How do you receive more of God's grace in your life? And that really is an important question, isn't it? Because we need God's grace. And so if you, as you've pondered this question, it may be that you've come across a few ideas over time, some things that maybe you think could help, but maybe uh, you, you find isn't as helpful as it could be, or uh, maybe you found some things that do seem to be helpful. Some suggestions I've seen over the years is that maybe you need to change your your, your devotion time, and maybe it is that you just need to have your devotions at 4 a.m. in the morning rather than at 6 in the morning. That could possibly be something that could help. Um, uh, some would say that would radically change your spiritual walk. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, you need to just go to a special revival service or maybe a big conference. And then, then the doors will be open in your life. You need to start following these big meetings that go on. Sometimes some folks would say, well, you just need to change your very lifestyle itself. Uh, maybe God is calling you to a foreign country as a missionary. Maybe you just need to become a monk and, and live out in the desert somewhere and, and, and be away from all of the influences of the world. Now, I want to be clear. There are some things that God will use in our lives like those to bless us. It's not that God doesn't ever use things like that. And it could be that God is calling you to change something. It could be that. But the solution is not always something that has to be radical, that has to be out of the ordinary. Sometimes the solution is to just dedicating yourself to the ordinary, to the things that God has called you to do. Now, this is a struggle that has been highlighted for the past, say, 516 years of church History. What happened then? Well, it was, of course, on October 31st in 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And that date is the date that historians have picked, not because it is the absolute start of what became known as Reformation thinking, but because it was a clear moment in history challenging some long accepted teachings by the Roman Catholic Church. And to understand that, in case you are unaware of some of the some of the issues surrounding the Reformation, Luther and his contemporaries, they were not trying to start a new religion. They were trying to reform errors and corruptions that were happening within their beloved Roman Catholic Church. Luther even wrote later on that he was just as much a Catholic when he posted those 95 theses as he had ever been. They were trying to change things that were wrong, and that's why we call it the Reformation rather than something else. They were trying to change what was 
happening? What were they trying to change? Well, we've noted some things in the past, but one of the teachings that the reformers were challenging is just how we get the grace of God in our lives. They wanted to make sure that people had God's grace available to them and not muddied with the doctrines of men, but rather a, 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 a truth that arises out of the inspired word of God. And as we look to God's word, we see in places like Titus chapter 2, a promise that God does give his grace to us. And it is possible to receive that. In the context of Titus, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete to set in order some, some issues that were going wrong in those churches, some, some unfinished business there like appointing elders and the like, and establishing a healthy church there on the island. Well, if Titus was to establish a sound, healthy church there, he must understand and teach how God's amazing grace works in people's lives. And that's what we see in verses like what we just read, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Paul explains here that grace appears, and he, he, he brings two realities uh, to the forefront with, with noticing the, the appearance of grace. What are those two realities? That, that grace saves us, and grace schools us. Grace saves us, and it schools us. Now, of course, we're using this as a launching point this morning. We, we want to see how we get that grace. And so we'll first begin by defining what is grace. What is grace that, 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 that's appearing? What is the grace that God offers to us? And then we'll consider how we get that grace. By what means does that grace come? And so let's begin by defining what is grace. What is grace? And the, the, the Greek word there is charis, charis. And it's another word for kindness. Kindness. Sometimes it's translated favor. Favor. And both kindness and favor in context of the New Testament letters, it, it, it is it is not deserved. It is undeserved. It's unmerited on the part of the recipient. It's a kindness or a favor that we do not deserve. I saw one author once put it like this. It's in fact a demerited favor because we actually deserve the opposite of this grace, but we get it anyway. This is what Karis is. This is what grace is. Now, the word predates Jesus. The word was around in ancient Greek. One commentator notes that in pagan Greece, this favor was always conferred upon a friend, not upon an enemy. It's actually the New Testament that brings out the idea of unmerited grace. It's the grace that's found in Jesus Christ that, that, that we, or it's in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ that we find a grace that is not earned through our friendship, through our own giving, through our own parts. 
Paul wrote this in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were helpless. We didn't earn this grace. We didn't earn the death of Jesus on the cross. We were helpless in our sinful estate. But he goes on to say, for, no, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. We do sometimes see that, that, that for a good man, someone would, would be willing on occasion to give up his life for such an individual. But God, we read, demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of the cross or enemies of Christ, Jesus went to the cross. He died for us while we were unworthy of his grace. You say, well, why does he have to die for us? Because sin has to be paid for. God's a just God. He's a righteous God. He says he will punish sin. And the question is, is it going to be punished on the cross with Jesus Christ? Or do you want to bear it yourself? And those really are the two options that life gives us. Those are the two options that the Lord gives us. Either we have our sins paid for by Jesus Christ or we say no to Jesus and we say, I think I'll just do fine on my own. Spoiler alert, you won't. You won't. But with these terms that we read here, helpless, ungodly, sinners, we see God granting what we do not deserve. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't that the Christian is just so much more holy. Now, we do have a holiness, but that holiness is alien to us. It's from Christ. We're called saints, holy ones, because we are members of the Holy One. Not because we ourselves are so much more righteous than everyone else. We are just, un just as undeserving as the rest of the world. And yet he died for us. And here in, in Titus 2.11, we read that the grace of God has appeared. The, the, the incalculable grace here is described as epiphany. That's the, that's the term here, it epiphanies. It, it, it appears out of the sky, as it were. And Paul carries his thought forward into the next chapter where in chapter 3, verse 4, he says that the, the goodness or kindness of our Savior and his love for mankind has appeared. He's saying God's grace has gilded the sky. And it's happened quite literally in the past where in times like Luke chapter 1 verse 79 Zechariah prophesied over the infant Lord he said that the sunrise has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace of course, I said that was literal. That's a little bit more of a metaphorical light, speaking of his guiding. But there was a literal light, remember, surrounding the birth of that infant child. 
as the angels appeared in heaven and they were saying glory to God in the highest. The, 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 the skies were lit up for those shepherds on that field that night. And it was this child who would shine a light to those who sit in darkness. This is the grace of God that's appearing. And we read in places like John chapter 1, verse 14, that when he came, he came full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This is the grace of God that's appeared. It's Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, it's, and it's undeserved. How does that grace save? How does that grace save? Well, the term salvation here modifies the word grace, charis, as in the saving grace of God that has appeared to all people. It's the saving grace of God that has appeared to all people, as one word study puts it. Now, the word saved can mean different things, of course. You know, if when the people, uh, those few souls relatively were saved that night from the wreck of the Titanic, that we talked about how many souls were saved. We're talking about, of course, lives that were rescued. And the Old Testament uses the word salvation in a physical way like that often. There's, uh, there are many times when David or, or all of Israel needed to be saved from the enemies of the God, of God there. And so they were literally physically saved uh, and delivered there. But the scripture also uses the term to speak of spiritual salvation. It does so in the Old Testament and obviously mostly in the New, where the grace of God appears in Jesus Christ. And so we have here in uh, John chapter 8, for instance, verse 34, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We just read that a few weeks ago. Jesus is saying, unless you believe that, that he is who he says he is, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior of the world. Unless you believe that, you will die in your sins. Again, it comes down to what I said a few minutes ago. It's either Jesus will pay for your sins or you just get to pay for your own sins. And that really is the choice there. And when he says that you will die in your sins, I want to be clear there. We're not just talking about the stopping of a beating heart. We are talking about a second death. Scripture uh, in places like Revelation, it talks about death as, as being not just a first death, but also a second death. What's the second death? It's a separation from God in hell. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell is a real place. Jesus talked about it. Jesus should know. I know hell's fallen on hard times. The doctrine has, that is. But Jesus really did. Talk about hell. And it's something that we're warned of because that's where we pay for our sins. 
You say, why does God send people to hell when they don't believe in Jesus? Listen, you deserve hell. Period. And so do I. I'm not just pointing fingers here. I deserve it too. Believing in Jesus is the means out of hell. Where he pays for our sins rather than we pay for our own sins. That's why Jesus says that. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is the warning that he gives us. Now, that is bad news, obviously. Hell is bad news. But we're talking about good news here. And the word gospel means good news, by the way. It means good news. We're talking about gospel issues this morning. We're talking about grace. And the grace of God, we read, has appeared. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, that Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. From the wrath to come. In Titus 2.11, excuse me, we read that Jesus, or that the grace of God has appeared. In chapter 3, verse 4, the kindness of our God, or of God our Savior, and his love for mankind has appeared. According to verse 7 of chapter 3, it's for this purpose. So that we would be justified by his grace that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified. It, that, what does that mean? That means that legally it will be as though you had not sinned. Someone, someone put it this way. I don't know if it's the best way to put it, but it sounds clever, so I'll repeat it. Justified means it's just if I had not sinned, right? Just if I had not sinned. <laughs> How often do you look back on your life and say, boy, I wish I could have changed that. Well, the Lord doesn't allow us to invent time machines right now. I don't think he has anyway. <laughs> but... He does allow us to have our sins washed away. He does allow us to have those sins judicially stricken from the record. You say, wait a minute, he's a just God. He's supposed to punish sin. That's right. He actually did punish it in Jesus Christ. so we're justified and it's so that we would be made heirs as well. We're actually brought into the family of God. We're, it's not like we live or we're just set back down to live like we used to live. No, we're now adopted from the family that we were in into a new family. We're now children of God. And so he brings us in by his grace. He not just forgives us. He brings us in to his grace. I'd say, okay, well, who does his grace save? Well, it says here, all men. And of course, you understand that to mean all people, right? All people. It saves all people. 
You say, okay, well, what does that mean? Because some have misread this to mean universal atonement. In, in, in the sense that God will eventually save every single person in the world. Another term for that is universalism. And sure, that's a nice thought that just Jesus dying on the cross means everyone gets saved. That would have been a nice thought in the early centuries of the church as Christians are facing Roman swords and the lions, right? They could have just said, you know what? Y'all are going to get saved anyway, so what, you know, it doesn't really matter what you say or what you do. Uh, you know, I'll need, to, I'll need to be persecuted for this. How many Christians in the Middle East uh, right now are being persecuted because of their faith and in other parts of the world? If, everyone say, if everyone's just going to get saved, then there's no need to get everyone's theology right. And really, frankly, it was chilly this morning. Is there really a need to come to church? We could have just stayed in our warm beds. I mean, we're all going to get saved in the end, right? No, unfortunately, that's not the way that Scripture describes it. And scripture says that we have to believe in Jesus. Jesus said that. We just read that. Unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. So, so we do have to believe we have to respond. We have to exercise faith and repentance. So that's not what's being said here. What Paul means is that all kinds of people are going to be saved. Rather than a, a, a universal atonement, there's a universal availability. It, do, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what background you come from. Uh, are you rich? You can get saved. Praise God, you can get saved. Are you poor? Guess what? You can get saved. Are you a man? Praise God for that. Oh boy, that's controversial to say today. But it's okay that you are a man. And guess what? You can get saved. And if you're a woman... Praise God for that. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to be a, to be a woman as well. And guess what? God can save you. Are, you. are you young? Guess what? God can save you. Are you old? Guess what? God can save you. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too early. God will save everybody. Because of this, Titus could, could extend the message of salvation to everyone on that island of Crete. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter if they're slave or free. Of course, Scripture says that elsewhere. We are all one in Christ, right? We are all one in Christ. So we can pray like Psalm 67 says, Psalm 67 verses 1 and 2. We can pray that God's way of salvation may be known among all the nations. I pray that he will even save the politicians in Washington. 
and the politicians here in our state as well. A lot of them need prayer, right? From our governor on down. Why? Because it's available to all of them. It's available to us as well. The, the gospel of this grace is available to all. And it saves those who trust in it. That's who it saves. Those who trust in it. Now the grace of God... When we're talking about it, it's easy to say, well, there it is. There's the grace of God, and we need to believe in it. But that's not where God's grace ends, because as we continue to read here, we read that God's grace brings salvation to all men, but it also does something else. It instructs, right? instructs us, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. See, verse 11, God's grace saves us. Verse 12, God's grace schools us. It does something more. And so God's grace is still needed by Christians. And I hope I'm just reviewing for you. I hope you didn't think that you had outgrown God's grace, said, okay, now I've received God's grace and now I can just live as I want to live. No, you still need God's grace. And it is available to you. And of course, you might be saying, yes, I knew that part. The question is, how do I get it? How do I get it? Well, that's where we turn next. What are the means of grace? What are the means of grace? What do we, what do we mean by means? Well, the Latin term for means is media. Media. Meaning channels. It's media, meaning channels. As I say that, you might be thinking, okay, yeah, so, so I'm on my television set and I'm flipping through the channels, I can hear all kinds of media. All right. Um, these terms obviously have an origin in that. Of course, that illustration I just gave may be a little bit dated now. I don't know how many people actually get up and flip through channels today um, <laughs> to, to get their media. Usually they don't get it through the TV anymore, although some still do. But what, what, what is being described here? We're talking about disseminating information. That's why you have the different channels and you can choose which channel you think is, is better at, at disseminating the information. And if you don't use the TV, perhaps you go on websites or social media or radios or something else and you can actually get that information from somewhere else. That there's this dissemination of information. These are means by which you can get get the news or entertainment or whatever else. What we're asking about is the media for God's grace. What channel do we turn to for that? You say, aha, I think I know what channel that is on the TV. No, that's not what we're talking about. You're taking me a little too literally with this. 
There, there, there may be recordings of God disseminating his grace in many places that then get broadcast either on TV or, 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 or posted on various websites and, and other forms of media. That's true, but that's not what we're talking about. In fact, when we're talking about the means of grace, we're talking about something that would have applied 500 years ago during the Reformation, a thousand years ago during the early Middle Ages, 2,000 years ago during the early church, just as the disciples are, are sending out the message of Jesus. These are means that must be available without our current technologies. So we're not talking about those kinds of means. In fact, the term that theologians use with the term means of grace is usually ordinary. And of course, that's what I called my message this morning, the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, something that is universally available, whether you are in a persecuted nation and you must meet in a small house church uh, without a lot of the modern conveniences, or you're meeting right here uh, in the Grand Valley this morning in Fruta, worshiping together with us. This is something that is available to all Christians throughout time. Now, if we're talking about incorrect definitions, we want to continue and, 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 and make sure that we're not identifying just any which way God might bless us. What do I mean? When we're talking about the means of grace, we're not just talking about every way God blesses you. Because God might bless you through that TV program. That's, that, that, that might be something that he does. Um, it might be a song that other people don't seem to like, but, but you like it and you really uh, sense that you're getting something out of it. Okay. Um, and, and, and you might be the only one there. Uh, it might be something that um, is just as, as, as small and as subtle as a kind word or a wave. And you might get blessed by that. You might feel uplifted through a pain and a sorrow that's happening in your life right now that other people would look at and they would say, that would embitter me if I had to go through that. But God is blessing you through that situation. These are all ways that God can give us grace. These are all means, I guess you could say in one sense, but but this isn't the historical definition, what is what I'm saying. When we, we're talking about something that's not just everything and anything that God uses to bless us. We're talking about something that is specific. What are the means of grace then that we're talking about, that the reformers were talking about? Well, as uh, Charles Hodge defined it, the phrase is intended to indicate those institutions which God has ordained to be the ordinary channels of grace. In other words, of the supernatural influences of the Holy Spirit to the souls of men. The Westminster Larger Catechism defines it this way. 
The means of grace are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. These are the ordinary means by which God blesses all of his people at the same time. These are the standards, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the means that God has promised to work through, that God will work through in the lives of believers. Well, what are, we, what are we talking about with these? Well, let's first consider the word as a means of grace, because the word is a mean of grace. We call it the word. Why? Because it is inspired or breathed by God. It is his word to us, to all of us. And because it is a God, it is a word by a God who is a God of grace it is a communication of grace to us. Did God have to give us this Bible? No, he did not. Did God have to preserve this Bible through time to make sure that you could have a copy of it sitting in your lap this morning? No, he did not. And yet he has offered it to us because he wants us to know about his grace. He wants us to know about the grace that appears in Jesus Christ. And it's only through his word that we get to know Jesus. You say, wait a minute. No, it was a preacher. It was an evangelist who told me about Jesus. Sure. Okay. That may be, but where did that evangelist, that preacher get his information from? <laughs> he got it from the word. He got it from the Bible. And who is he pointing you to? He's pointing you to the Jesus, not of his imagination. If he's doing his job rightly, that is. He's pointing you to the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the word. And so this is where we get our information about Jesus. And this is the Lord of Scripture that, that we need to know. This is the Lord of this grace. In fact, let's look at a few uh, places in his word. Let's go back to or go to the book of James, which is to the right a little bit, right after Hebrews. Just a few pages here. Hebrews, or excuse me, just after Hebrews, James chapter 1, verse 18 James 1.18, we read this. In the exercise of his will, so God is exercising his will, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by what? By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. 
There's no contradiction, by the way, between Jesus and the Word. In fact, Jesus is called the living Word. And when we read about him in the Word, it is by God's will that we are brought forth by that Word. When we read about Jesus and we read about the promises of Jesus, we, we are, are being brought forth into new life by what Jesus has accomplished, true, but also by what is recorded there. We are, we are being brought to the truth in the word of truth. Let's continue going to the right a little bit to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 23, 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And we could even continue there. All flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. It's through God's word that we are brought forth unto this new life, that we receive this salvation. Okay, let's go to the left a little bit here. To, to the book of Romans. I could have been putting these verses up. Oh, look at that. There we go. Romans 10, 17. That would have made it easier, right? At one point, I thought it was easier. I should have been putting it up there. There we go. He Hebrews, or excuse me, Romans, especially since I uh, am saying the wrong places every once in a while here. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Why is it hearing? Well, in many parts of the world, in many parts of his, in many places in history, there has been uh, a, a, a lack of education, let's say, where not everyone knew how to read and write. Some people did. It, it probably has been higher than some of the numbers you've seen. There probably have been more people who could read and write than what you might believe, but not everyone could read and write. And so what did you have? You usually had a pastor or preacher standing here reading the word, and that's how a lot of people heard the word that week. And when you hear the word... Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's not the preacher's opinions that would bring about faith. I wonder what the pastor thinks about the sports team. What about those Broncos? Since I've moved here, I've learned that that's actually a team here in the state. Y'all don't want my sports opinions. They're not going to do you any good. And that's not going to produce faith in you anyway. It's the word of Christ that produces faith. 
And so that's why the preacher is supposed to be talking about these things. You might say, well, yeah, couldn't, couldn't a preacher be doing that on television or the radio or through some other methods? Sure, absolutely. And God may bring some, some limited fruit through those efforts. But guess where the preacher should be doing it? Right here. Right here, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings on the Lord's Day. The word of God should be proclaimed so that we will receive that grace through the preaching of the word. And again, that we're not just talking about salvation, although a lot of these passages have highlighted that. And even here in Titus 2.11, we've highlighted that. Yes, we are talking about salvation and we receive that grace through the word, but we're talking about the information about grace as well. How, how we can learn about truth, how we can learn how we should live when we talk about uh, ungodliness, for instance. Well, how do I deny ungodliness? Well, you need to get into the word first and foremost. How do I, how do I learn to, to abstain from worldly desires? You need to get into the word first and foremost. How do I learn to live sensibly? Because so much of my life has been unsensible. Well, guess what? The word has the answer for you. There's a grace here to help you live righteously and godly, even in this present age. Even in this present age. This is where the grace comes from. Salvation is the clearest, clearest grace that we know, of course, but God's grace doesn't end there. We can be sanctified in the word. What did Jesus say in John 17, 17? That's his high priestly prayer. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. God's word causes us to grow in salvation and it builds us up in faith. And there are a few other passages we could go to. And in fact, as we are reading this here in Titus 2, Titus 2, 11 and 12 parallels the idea that scripture is training us in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says that the word is profitable. It's not just God breathed. It's, pro it's profitable for our instruction, for our training in righteousness. And so God is training us, but he's training us through the reading and preaching of his word. Now, I hope as we're going through this, you're seeing the importance of being where you can hear the word week after week. Because this is how God works. God works through his word. He also works through his sacraments. His sacraments are means of grace. Now, when we're talking about sacraments, we're talking about something that's sacred, but the term may make you think of Roman Catholicism. You might say sacraments. Isn't that a Roman Catholic thing? Well, not just a Roman Catholic thing, but the Roman Catholic Church did add a lot to it. Um, instead of two, they actually added to that five more. 
And so as one theologian notes, it has seven sacraments, adding to baptism and the Lord's Supper, what? Matrimony, orders, penance, confirmation, and extreme unction. But he goes on to note that there's no biblical uh, basis for the rest of those. This is part of what the Reformation was pushing back against. We don't want to say that you're going to get uh, God's blessings through things that God himself has not promised. That's why we've noted that the word is the primary means of grace. It informs us as to how we get these graces in our lives. Now, because of Roman Catholic history, I, I do want to note that some folks do not like the word sacraments, and that's okay if you prefer. There is a different term that many Baptists use and uh, other evangelicals, and that's ordinances, as in those things which God has ordained. That's another term. Uh, and what are the two ordinances or sacraments of the church that Scripture has affirmed? Baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper. Baptism and communion. Let's consider the first of those, baptism. Uh, baptism is a transliteration of Greek word. It means to dip or to immerse. And through the immersion of, of a person in water, uh, that person uh, is, is speaking of their having been washed in the blood of Christ. Their sins having been purified. Now, I'm using uh, past tense verbs here. It is not through the dipping and immersion process that your sins get washed away. Rather, the baptism is speaking of the reality that has already taken place in the person's life. It's a symbol. It's a tangible symbol it's a reminder uh, as you go into those waters that, that the Lord has promised something for you and that he has performed it for you. And it's something that you remember, especially if you were baptized in the early church. Now, today we have heaters in our baptismals. In the early church, they didn't have those. And in fact, they even preferred that the water be cold. So um, if you're baptized in a place like Russia or somewhere else, you know, uh, uh, some of those colder baptisms that can take place. That's something that's memorable. That's something that you will look back upon and say, yeah, that happened. And guess what else happened? Jesus dying on the cross for me. It's memorable. That's part of why it gives you a grace in your life. It, it, it demonstrates how we're linked to the work of Christ. We are uh, we, we're crucified with them. We're buried in a like death with them. And then we are raised again unto new life. It's also a seal of the new covenant into which we come through faith. But again, it is Jesus that saves. It's not the water. It's not the cleansing of the water. It's Jesus that saves. And so the, the baptism is a reminder. It is something that is speaking of a greater reality. And it's a normal process. It's a normal process. I don't have to, when I give a baptism, I don't have to pray over the water. 
or sprinkle something into the water to make it something else, right? It's just water. It comes out of the tap or somewhere else, you know, wherever we get our water source. It's just, it, it, it just regular water. You say, doesn't it become something sacred or holy? No, not really. It's sacred only in the sense that it's, it's set apart for a purpose. But you know what we do with that water after we're done with it? We drain it. You say, oh, that water, it was, it was holy water. No, it's just water. It's just water. It's normal water. It, it, it's what, when we're talking about the ordinary means of grace, we're talking about ordinary things here. Just regular water. We don't have to liven it up either. We don't have to put a water slide into the baptismal. We don't have to uh, put a diving board. This is really not that deep. I wouldn't recommend that either. We don't have to put fire trucks and water guns on the sides of it to try to get the kids to get baptized. Has that really happened? Yeah. Unfortunately, some churches do that. We don't have to invite people up for spontaneous baptisms to just see what happens. Let's just see who wants to get baptized today. Woo! Isn't this great? We have people come forward. Just kind of a willy-nilly approach. No, we follow the process that God has set out for us, and it's just a regular process. You say, that, that might get boring. Okay. But it's not in what we do. It's what God is doing in the process. That's where the emphasis should be. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Communion. A lot of passages talk about the importance of it. When the Lord instituted it. Just ordinary elements. Breaking bread. A cup with the fruit of the vine, as we smell it, as we taste it, so we consume it, we are reminded of very tangible realities. Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was poured out on our behalf. But they are ordinary elements. People will quibble over some of the incidentals, of course. Just like, you know, should the water of the, of the baptismal be cold or hot? You know, they, they quibble over the Lord's table, too. Should, should, the, should the bread be leavened or unleavened? You know, uh, the, the, the cup, should it have alcoholic wine or is non-alcoholic okay? Those, those are incidentals, and churches will have to decide on those issues. I'm not trying to say they're unimportant questions. They, they're questions we have to decide about. We can't do it, you know, differently every time and just say, okay, let's just see what God does with this one, and let's see what God does with this one. No, we just, we make a choice, and we, we move forward with it. But what we're not given permission to do is to change things up. You say, well, what's, what would be an example of that? Well, there was a church... A few years ago, following the death of Trayvon Martin in Florida in 2012, which held the Lord's Supper featuring Skittles and iced tea, the last meal of Trayvon Martin. And you need to come and partake in the name of social justice. 
we're not given permission to just change things up to get our own message out there. I'll give you another example. A lot of churches closed down in 2020 for COVID, of course. And pastors were trying to figure out what to do. How do we get communion to people if they're not gathered in one place? And so the, on their live streams and on their videos, they were saying, well, just everyone go into your pantries, go into your refrigerators, get whatever you have. If you have Oreos and milk, that will be your communion. No, that's not the right way to do it. Now, I understand that they were struggling to try to understand how to do these things in that time. But invention is not a freedom that the Lord allows his faithful. We need to be aware of that. God has promised grace to us. We need to do it the right way. We're united to him in our spiritual baptism meaning our water baptism reminds us of our freedom from the bondage of sin and our hope of uh, future resurrection. Romans 6 says, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the death of Christ and, and collectively participate in the body and blood of our Lord, Scripture says. These are precious moments in the Christian's life, and they are working a grace in our hearts. We need to be here for those graces. We need to be here for those graces. Because of the working of Christ through his spirit. His grace is for believers. It's possible for unbelievers to get baptized or to take the Lord's Supper. But that's not proper. This is supposed to be a reminder for believers. A reminder for believers. Why? Because it's a means of grace for us so that we can be instructed. What else is a means of grace? Prayer. Prayer. So our final one that we're talking about today. We don't operate with the word of God in a detached manner. We don't operate with the Lord's table in a detached manner. We don't operate with baptism in a detached manner. We are constantly going before the throne of grace. And we, when, we are, when we are engaging in prayer, that's what we're doing. We are asking God for grace because we need his grace. We need his grace. And that prayer uh, must be a prayer that is pleasing to him. As an aside, we could note also the reverse. It's not, a, it's not prayer in itself that blesses us. Many pagans and unbelievers pray. And they might even feel a good feeling from it. But, but prayer must be shaped by the inspired word to have an effectual work in our hearts, an effectual work of grace in our hearts. For instance, we could step back and consider salvation for a moment. It is, uh, it is through Jesus Christ alone, of course, that we're saved. It is not possible for someone to be a Christian and not know it. Some people believe that. Some people believe you can be an atheist or uh, uh, an agnostic or a Buddhist or a Muslim or, or whatever else. And, and, and you could still be a Christian because Christ might have saved you and you didn't know it. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says whoever 
will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have to call upon the name of the Lord. People aren't saved otherwise. And beyond salvation, we just need his grace every day. You know, Jesus' disciples asked him to increase their faith. Sometimes we need that too, don't we? We can pray for that grace. Increase our faith. We can pray that. We can go before the throne of grace in a time of need. Hebrews 4.16 says, We are following along with the pattern of the early church. What did the early church do? We're going to talk about it a little bit tonight. Acts 2.4, or excuse me, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is what we are to do as well. As such, God's grace is not only for those who are getting saved, it's for us as well. And I hope you see that. I hope you see the distinctions that we've been making uh, this morning. First, grace is favor that we receive. It is not something we earn. It is not something we earn. It is the work of God. It is not our own work. We do not merit God's grace by reading our Bibles, by, by partaking of the sacraments, or by praying. Rather, we receive God's grace through these things. And I hope that you see it's only in Christ that we receive grace, and it's an unmerited grace. It's an unmerited grace. And as you read about him in, your wor in, in, in the word of God, in your copies of God's word, as you are partaking in the sacraments and praying, you're reminded of the work that Christ has already accomplished on your behalf. You are not earning that work. You are rather receiving the blessings from that work in the process. So I hope you don't hear that grace is something that you earn through reading the Bible or praying or by partaking. This grace also is not a regenerating grace. And there is a distinction that the reformers have made here. It is a converting grace, but not a regenerating grace. What does that mean? You are not saved from hell because you crack open a Bible. That doesn't save you. That would be a workspace salvation. You are not saved because you pray. That would also be a workspace salvation. You can pray to be saved, but you're not saved because you pray. You're saved because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's a subtle but very vital distinction. Roman Catholicism added these things and said, oh, you need this. You need to have your babies baptized. You, you need to partake in communion every week. You need to pay your indulgences. You need to have a lifetime of faithful participation if you are to gain enough grace to ensure heaven. They called that final justification. If you have enough grace at the end, 
like the old cartoon. You meet Peter at the goal, at the golden gates up there, and he's going to put all this stuff in your life on the scale. And maybe the good stuff will outweigh the bad stuff. And I don't know, is it going to, well, that's kind of the idea there. That is a workspace salvation. That's not salvation by grace. That's the salvation you earn. No, we're justified by the work of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. We're justified when we pray. Not because we pray, but we're justified in that moment where we practice our faith. And he justifies you in Christ alone. And then you read. And then you pray. And then you uh, partake of the elements because you have experienced that glorious conversion. And so grace is not something that's regenerating. It's something that is teaching you. It is something that is leading you. And it is something that is ordinary in some ways. These are ordinary means of grace. There's nothing fanciful about them. How do you know if you're in a fanciful religion? When the Pope can say things like this, you know, if you give me a follow on Twitter, you'll knock a lot of years off purgatory. It'll benefit your eternal soul if you follow me on Twitter. Wow. That's not, that's, that's not something that God allows us to do. We don't have to think outside the box. We don't have to make things easier for God. We need to do it His way. You say, oh, wait a minute. Okay, you got to the end of this. All I'm hearing is just go to church and... Listen to the Bible being read and, and pray and do the other parts of worship, like the sacraments. And I've been doing that. Nothing has radically changed in my life. Why do you expect a radical change? Why do you expect it to happen on God's or on your timetable when God has a timetable? Let me, let me th put it in this way, and I'll leave you with this illustration as we close here. Because I know you're hungry. I'm hungry too. I'm just thankful my stomach's not growling loud enough for you to hear it. Think about being a child and eating. Think about yourself when you were a child when you were eating. Do you remember every single meal you had? You might remember maybe a couple of times, maybe. But every single one? Was every single meal radical and life-changing? No. But every meal built you up to the point where you are today. And you need that continuous uh, nourishment to continue on. Well, this is the nourishment for our souls. You're not going to remember every sermon. You're not going to remember every prayer. You're not going to remember every time of communion. But it's essential nonetheless. It is giving you a grace that you don't even know about. So ask the Lord to help you to see that essential part of, his, of, of the life that he is giving to you. Let the work of God have its way within you so that you can continue to grow in maturity as he has called you to grow in maturity.
Let's seek his grace through the ordinary. And I think you'll find that you don't need the extraordinary. 